The Lord is my portion. I promise to keep thy words. I entreat thy favor with all my heart. Be gracious to me according to thy promise. That's verses 57 and 58 from Psalm 119. The psalm appointed for today is Psalm 119, verses 49 to 72. For today, Wednesday, April the 28th, 2021. You're listening to Faith Seeking Understanding, and I'm your host, John Green. Thanks for being with us today. We're continuing in the book of Wisdom today, and you remember the sort of the way the arc of this narrative has has unfolded in the in the book of Wisdom is is that we have uh, we began with the sort of the the viewpoint of the of the unrighteous, the non-believers, let's say. Um, and, and their attitude towards life because they're non-believers and because they don't believe there is an eternal judgment or an eternal life. They're getting the most out of this life no matter what the cost is to other people. Um, and so they can exploit other people and things and, and eat, drink, and be merry. And then the, the next was the uh, uh, sort of a word to those who believe um, and who believe in eternal life, and who believe in eternal judgment. And it was um, the admonition to continue in the faith, and to live and walk by faith all the days of your life, that, that your priorities and your interests and everything else should be dictated by what you believe, and what you believe about eternity, that this life is not all that there is. And so now we're continuing in that, that sort of affirmation and encouragement um, in this portion from Wisdom, uh, four, chapter 416 through um, chapter 5, verse 8. And so it's, Thus the righteous that is dead shall condemn the ungodly which are living, and youth that is soon perfected the many years and old age of the unrighteous. They'll see the end of the wise and shall not understand what God in his counsel hath decreed of him, and to what end the Lord hath set him in safety. They shall see him and despise him, but God shall laugh them to scorn, and they shall hereafter be a vile carcass and a reproach among the dead forevermore. For he shall rend them and cast them down headlong, that they shall be speechless. He'll shake them from the foundations, and they shall be utterly laid waste and be in sorrow, and their memorials shall perish. And then goes through the idea of, of the uh, eternal judgment when you stand before the judge, and that, that they will come with fear, but the righteous man will stand in great boldness before the face of such as has afflicted him and made no account of his labors. And they'll be troubled with terrible fear and shall be amazed at the strangeness of his, the righteous person's salvation, so far beyond all that they looked for. And they, repenting and groaning for anguish of spirit, shall say within themselves, This was he whom we had sometimes in derision and a proverb of reproach. We fools accounted his life madness and his end to be without honor. And that's an interesting thing that, that from the perspective of afterlife, being able to look back and see that, that we were the fools. We thought we had the wisdom. We thought that we knew what this was all about. But now in retrospect, as we stand before the throne of judgment, we see we were the ones who were fools. We thought he was mad, and his end was without honor. And now what we see is great honor in heaven for all eternity for this one. And that's what Paul says in Corinthians. He's talking about being fools for Christ, that we look like true idiots if, if the, with the story of the cross, which is folly to the world, the story of a dying God who submitted himself to men and, and is then raised again three days later. And he says, without the resurrection, we are more to be pitied than anybody else on earth. But because of the resurrection, 
then nobody should pity us. They might hate us, but they shouldn't pity us because we know that there is eternal life. And that knowledge, that secure knowledge because of the resurrection of Jesus, is all we should need in order to live in a different way and have a totally different set of priorities. And so they look back and say, we accounted him and his life as madness. And now what we see is that we wasted our lives, and that's exactly what they say in a couple of verses. We wearied ourselves in the way of wickedness and destruction. Yea, we have gone through deserts where there was no way, but as for the way of the Lord, we have not known it. What hath pride profited us, or what hath good riches what good hath riches with our vaunting brought us? And so, yeah, we've lived this vain life where it all means nothing in the end. Because if this is all there is, then there's no value. Because it goes away when we go away, when we die, and we'll all die. It's as simple as that. So are we laying up riches in heaven or are we laying up riches on earth? And what are we seeking after? What is our summum bonum, our highest good? And Jesus gives us absolutely the straightforward direction as to what that should look like. And it's a countercultural kind of life. And in this gospel lesson from Luke 6, 27 to 38, he begins with, But I say to you that here, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Yeah, there, there's not a single person on earth who naturally sees those things as the right responses, right? Love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. Well, maybe that last one I could do. But what's my prayer going to sound like, right? It's going to sound like, you know, Lord, do something awful to that person. And, and that's not what Jesus means. Obviously, it's not what Jesus means. And with all these things... When he says things like love your enemies, what is he really saying? He's really saying don't have enemies. Don't treat anybody as an enemy is really all he's saying because he, he says to love them and then says to do good to those people who hate you and bless those who curse you. So what he's really teaching us is to, to get through this life in a godly way. We've got to love those who are created in the image of God no matter how they treat us. As he says, to him who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also. And from him who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your cloak as well. Give to everyone who begs from you. And of him who takes away your goods, don't ask them again. And if you, as you wish that men would do to you, do so to them. It's a very countercultural and counterintuitive way to live. It's not the way we would ordinarily do things. We like to lash out at people who lash out at us. And if people treat us badly, then what we'd like to do is, at best, we would ignore them and cut them out of our lives and never have anything to do with them again. We wouldn't treat them well. We wouldn't bless them. But Jesus says that's what you're to do, and that's what he does, all the way to the cross. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And then he restores Peter. He doesn't say, you're going to have to take a season off, and then I'm going to restore you to the actual fellowship much less any kind of leadership. No, he gives him charge right there at the beginning on the beach after the resurrection when, when they've been out fishing. And he says, says, feed my sheep. He's giving him charge over his own sheep. Just, the kingdom works in radical ways that, that we are not familiar with because nothing on earth works in the same way the kingdom does. 
And so we're called to be a different kind of people. We're called to understand the radical nature of forgiveness and the radical nature of love, which calls forth so much from us and demands so much. It demanded Jesus' life on a cross. And he says, you take up your crosses and follow me. And he goes on to say, you know, okay, these are the commandments that I'm giving you. If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. If you lend to those from whom you hope to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much again. And then he repeats himself. Love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your return reward will be great and you'll be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the selfish. I'm glad that he's kind to the ungrateful and the selfish because that so often describes who I am. And then he gives this other commandment, be merciful even as your Father is merciful. We're called to be merciful people. We're called to be people who who have received such mercy that, that it changes us utterly to become people who give mercy to other people. And sometimes there are people that we can give mercy to because it's easy to give mercy to those people because we have some relationship with them in the past that that causes us to want to be merciful to them in the future. But there are other people who you don't have that relationship with in the past that you're called to be merciful to as well. And it's never easy to do. These things are difficult to navigate. If it didn't call forth something from us, then it really wouldn't be much at all to be a Christian. If it didn't call for us to sacrifice so much our reputations our money even here because he says lend without expecting anything in return if somebody takes something from you give give them more than that and so he calls for us to be peacemakers but also he calls for us to live lives the way he did exactly the way he did being willing to to lay down your own claim to whatever in order to advance the kingdom. But in order to advance the kingdom, we have to be kingdom kind of people, which means we have to be like him. And he says, judge not and you won't be judged. Condemn not and you won't be condemned. Okay, well, I can kind of do that. But I'm judging people when I say, well, I'm better than him or her or whatever. And I I tend not to condemn people. But it's taken a long time to get to the place where I don't condemn people, to be perfectly honest with you. And then he goes on to say, forgive, and you will be forgiven. Wait a minute, I thought I was forgiven. But he says, forgive, and you will be forgiven. He kind of says the same thing when he taught him how to pray, too, right? Forgive us our sins as we forgive those who have sinned against us. It's always conditional, upon us being the same kind of people that he is and forgiving those and give and it'll be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap for the measure you give will be the measure you get back. And sometimes we can hear that and go, well, cool, if I do all this then, if I give 50 cents, then maybe I'll get a dollar. That's not what it says. <laughs> That's not what it means. But we're so conditioned to think that way. And then Paul speaks in this... Colossians passage, and he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I complete what's lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, the church. Yeah, you know what? Nobody teaches that. 
That is not the message that appeals to people and gets them to come in the church and gets them to continue to come to the church. I rejoice in my sufferings. No, nobody wants to hear about that. Nobody even wants to think about that. In fact, we can't account for sufferings because we don't want to think about it. We don't want to talk about it. So we come up with these stupid ideas that I'm suffering because there's some unconfessed sin somewhere in my life. And it's possible that that's true, but I mean, I knew a guy who was one of the most godly people I know who was suffering with lung cancer. He never smoked. He was also, this guy had a heart for God like nobody I've ever seen, to be honest with you. And so he's suffering, I mean, horribly with this lung cancer. And I had a woman come into my office, and, and they'd been going out there and praying for him. And, and she said, John, I know what's going on with this guy. I said, what's that? She said, he has unconfessed sin in his life. I said, what makes you think that? He said, well, we can't come up with any other reason he'd be struggling with this. I mean, I wanted to beat her, to be perfectly honest with you. I was so angry that I just couldn't believe that anybody would have said such a thing. You're blaming him? You're blaming him. I mean, that's really the case, but, but Paul says he rejoices in his sufferings. There's just no place in modern American Christianity to rejoice in sufferings. But Paul does. And he said there's the whole purpose of this was that I'm making up these, these uh, in my flesh, what's lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, of which I became a minister according to the divine office given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Paul says, I'm suffering all these things for your sake so that I can make the gospel known. And I rejoice in those things. I'm not blaming you. I'm not hating you for what I have to go through here. No, I'm happy to do this. Because God's making known among the Gentiles the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning every man and teaching every man in all wisdom that we can prevent every man mature in Christ. That's not even hardly the goal often in churches. We, we, we're satisfied that you made a profession of faith when you were 12 and got baptized. No, Paul says that's not enough. We want to present every man mature in Christ. That's the reason I'm working for this, not to get people to make a one-time profession of faith. No, that they might give their lives away and that they might become more like Christ, that they might be discipled by him and that we might be a different people, a completely separate kingdom of priests in the world. He says, for this I toil, striving with all the energy which he mightily inspires within me. I want you to know how greatly I strive for you and for those at Laodicea and for all those who haven't seen my face, that their hearts may be encouraged as they're knit together in love, to have all the riches of assured understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery of Christ, in whom are hid all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That's all I want. I want you to know him, and I want you to love him, and I want you to love his word, and I want you to, to dedicate your life to becoming like him in every single way, no matter what it costs you. He said that's the key, that's the secret of the Christian life. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so live in him, rooted and built up in him, and established in the faith, just as you were taught, abounding in thanksgiving. Paul wouldn't recognize so much of what we call Christianity in America, which is a Christianity without Christ, a Christianity without worship, a Christianity without community, and a Christianity without the Word of God. We have our own little favorite passages, but on a regular basis, are we in the Word of God? Are we immersing ourselves in his Word so that we can know more about him because we love him so much we want to know more about him? Or are we making excuses 
for our failures to pursue Him. How do we spend our time? It's always the measure of where we are.